Open your Bible to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 32. They say that a, a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Uh, so whenever possible, it's best to learn from other people's mistakes. It's always the good, better road to go. I have had it both ways in my life. I have learned from other people's mistakes to some degree, and I've also had to learn the hard way. Uh, I learned from other people's mistakes first. I, I, I learned from my dad never to iron your shirt while it's still on your body. Just take it. Just take it from him. Just know that's not a good choice. From my wife, I learned never to hire a guy to hang crown molding who learned it by watching a YouTube video. Just trust me, not a good way to go. I also learned from a, another friend who watched a YouTube video that YouTube does not make you a professional electrician. Just remember that. It doesn't. It always looks easier on YouTube than it really is. From one of our staff members, we'll not tell you which one. They're going to be over in this area, and they're probably going to turn red when I say this. From one of our staff members, I learned that if you park a grocery cart in a parking lot on a decline, take your kid out before you let it go, all right? <laughs> Not going to say which one. Jeremy Hudson. Um, <laughs> from another friend in the congregation who is a member, he will remain nameless. He is also sitting over in this section. You will see him. He'll be the one that turns red, all right? I won't say what his name is, but it rhymes with Hermie Joggle. Uh, <laughs> I learned that day-old ashes can still catch your yard on fire. And in some cases, will even burn your fence down. All right? So I learned those mistakes from other people, from watching other people. But some things I had to learn the hard way. Like I learned the hard way never to tell your children anything you don't want the rest of the world to know. Like if you tell them smoking is dangerous, it's hazardous to your health, and it can kill you, the first person that they see smoking, they're going to say, my dad said you're going to die. <laughs> I learned the hard way never to eat beef at a seafood restaurant. Just don't do it. Trust me. Not good. I learned the hard way if you're going to build, if you're going to roast hot dogs, don't build a bonfire to do it. Y'all remember that? Lake Gunnersville last year. Uh-huh. It was like Frodo trying to throw the ring into Mount Doom. We were just with the hot dogs ducking down behind the wall trying to roast it. You could feel the heat like 50 yards away. And we were going to try to get up close with our little hot dog. No, it wasn't working. I learned the hard way. Another fire story. Light the flame first. Then turn on the gas. All right? You have no idea how fast the flames will engulf you. It is terrifying. Yes, that happened while well, we lived here in Alabama. So that tells you how recent that was. Six months ago, probably. My hair on my arms have just grown back, actually. Uh, in our passage this morning, 
David is passing on personal knowledge. Something that, that he has learned the hard way. He, he's really saying to the congregation, take it from me. And as he writes this psalm, he writes it as something that has happened to him personally. And he wants the entire nation of Israel to learn the lesson that he had to learn the hard way. And to not repeat what he has already done. So this is someone, this is coming from someone who has made the mistake and is seeking to spare you of making that same kind of mistake. So let's read what he says in Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one, who, who, one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, O you up, all you upright in heart. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have read your word, sung your word, prayed your word, as we have heard your word reiterated to us time and again through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray, we pray now that as we seek to understand your word, you would apply it to our lives. Open our eyes that we might see and our hearts that we might obey what it is that you've put before us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I spent some time just reminding you of what the Psalms really are about. We're in book one of the Psalms. Book one is the first of five total books in the Psalms. So the, the Psalms is really just a, a Psalter. It's a hymn book. It's an ancient hymn book that's divided into five parts. And this first, book one, is mostly written by David. He's the king. He's the king of Israel. And he's writing these Psalms on behalf of not only him, but on behalf of the whole nation of Israel to actually gather together and sing together. And we're reminded, as Mark Futato said, book one of the book of Psalms is about the establishment of God's kingdom. That's what the entire book one is about. The establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which is originally David, but ultimately is Jesus. So all of these hymns, while they're written by David mostly, all of them are going to point in one way or another to ultimately to Jesus. And so our job is not only to understand what David is saying, but then also how those psalms or those hymns in anticipate the coming of the future king, Christ. So David is significant, to say the least. He's significant in that respect because he's sort of the, the prototype, as it were, of the Messiah to come. 
Now, he's not Jesus. He's not what Jesus is going to be. But he is a savior of sorts of Israel. Especially when you look at King Saul that came before him. David comes in as king on the back end of Saul after Saul's done, and he actually restores obedience to the nation of Israel. So he is significant in that he leads uh, Israel in the right direction. So he's a savior of sorts, but he's not what Jesus is going to be in the future. So David is significant in that respect. But he's also significant for another reason, and that is that he's fallen, he's sinful. David is, is sinful. He's called a man after God's own heart. We see that in the, in the Old Testament. But you realize, he's not called a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. He's called a man after God's own heart because he wanted to obey in contrast to Saul. Now, he failed in spectacular ways sometimes, in some really terrible ways. But what was produced in him through his sinning was repentance. That's what he desired is to be right with God. And so he sinned in spectacular ways at times. But and in some cases, he paid dearly for those sins for long periods of time. So it's not as though that the Bible is trying to whitewash David and present to you a person who is free from all the peccadilloes and all the, all the sins and all those kinds of things at all. In fact, it's presenting you a true picture of David who, though a man after God's own heart, though desired repentance, sinned terribly and grievously from time to time, and the Lord punished him for those sins. So in this psalm that we're reading here, in Psalm 32, David is playing the role of the experienced one. He's the teacher of Israel who has been there and done that. And it's typical of the David that we find written about in Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, as he's kind of taking the throne. He, he's really being honest about his sin in front of the congregation. He, he's owning up to what the result of his sin really was. And he, he wants his sin and his mistakes to serve as a lesson for the people as they interact with God. So it's, it's almost a direct line straight to us as a New Testament congregation of what we should be doing as a response to what David's lesson is that he's learned from God by refusing to confess his sin for a period of time. And so we're going to get two sections of this psalm. The, the first is David talking about his own personal experience and just kind of laying that out for you in verses 1 to 5. And then in verse 6, beginning with the word therefore, which is right at the beginning of verse 6. You can see he's transitioning. So let what I had what happened to me be a lesson to you. Therefore, he starts to give advice and how you should respond. Take it from me, he's saying to us. So first, let's look at the personal experience of the king. And if you have your copy of the word, I would just suggest you open it and follow along line by line because you're going to need it. He starts at the beginning of this psalm with this poetic beatitude. And, and beatitude is just a fancy word for blessings. He's just saying a, a, a blessing on people. We see that in, in Matthew 5 where Jesus gives the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the... And so he does this right here at the beginning. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things right out of the gate that are assumed from the outset. The first thing is that righteousness is required. Right? Righteousness is required. And the second thing is that violating that righteousness is our normal, everyday experience. Righteousness is required, 
And, and yet violating that righteous standard is our everyday, lived-in experience. That's what we do regularly. There's a righteous requirement, he says, that the Lord has for his, his people. Really, for all people. A righteous standard that God has for all of mankind. And we see that in the, in the very words, transgression, sin, iniquity. All of them point to a breaking of a righteous standard, a standard by which everyone is judged. So we know right out of the gate, righteousness is required, and David is saying he has transgressed that righteousness. He has broken that standard of righteousness. Violating that righteous standard is our regular, everyday experience. You notice in this psalm, there isn't a category for the perfect one. The one who has no transgression to confess. Who, who does not sin. Who has no iniquity. Our everyday experience. David is assuming by writing this psalm that you have to be forgiven of your iniquity. It's assumed that you are going to live in a state of iniquity, or at least you are going to have transgression counted against you. It's true of all of us. Those two principles are the first three lines of this introduction. It says, the one whose transgression is forgiven, sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, those are important to understand so that we can see the real target of the psalm. Look there in the fourth line, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So there's really two people, there's really two categories of people that are the target of this psalm. The first is the sinner, which we talked about is, is all of us, and the second is the liar. The sinner and the liar. You're either a sinner that is wondering, what do I do with my sin? How can I actually be reconciled before God? Or you're the liar who is convinced that he has no sin or that the sin that he does have does not need to be reconciled with God. So you're either living in one of two states. Either you have sin, you have broken God's law, you have broken his righteous standard, or you're saying that you have no sin. So David's saying, some, David's putting forward two people, and one of them is, is familiar to us from 1 John 1 8. John says something similar. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're liars. And the truth is not in us. So, so John's telling you right out of the gate in 1 John, look, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. It's the same category of person that David is presenting here to us in these two paths, the sinner and the liar. And he says when the sinner finds forgiveness, he's blessed in every way. Now the liar is going to have a completely different experience, and that's what he's about to get to because he was one. So if we could understand what John, what, what David is saying here in the psalm, if we were to translate the Hebrew literally, we would probably see something in there like, uh, ask me how I know. Now, it's not in there. I can't find it anywhere. But that's essentially implied in the psalm is, here's, uh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Ask me how I know. All right? And we're going to get to how he knows. Look at what he says in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. So when David is asked, how do you know this, David? 
to verses 1 and 2. He answers in verses 3 and 4, because I was the liar. I was the one who sat there in my sin, silent, as if God would just pass over these things. But the best part about these verses is that he says, listen to what my experience was like. Just just listen to what happened to me when I played the role of liar. First, he says, I kept silent. Now, we don't know what kind of sin this was in particular, if it's one we hear about in Scripture, or maybe it's just one that was part of his everyday life and not even recorded in Scripture. The point is that he said nothing about it to the Lord, maybe thinking that the Lord would just pass over it, maybe thinking this is insignificant to the Lord, maybe he'll ignore this, or I can just forget about it, or if I just stay quiet, it'll just go away and fade into the background. But the point is that he keeps silent about it, and what happens to him, his bones, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning. That's like a screaming in agony all day long. His conscience is pressed as under a vice. That's what he feels like. Because of his silence, his conscience is tearing him up. He was in a state of constant anxiety over the burden of his sin. But here's what I love about Hebrew poetry. is What it says in one verse or one line, it normally clarifies in the line or verse after. It's unlike any other form of poetry. Hebrew poetry, it usually says something, and you might be like, what What is that? And then the next line, it'll tell you what he means. And in this case, in verse 4, he explains the reality of what was really happening when his conscience was tearing him up. So the the first verse, in verse 3, is really him saying, this is what my experience was like. I was groaning all day long. My conscience was torn up. I mean, from sun up to sun down, it was just sheer agony living with this guilty conscience of my sin just sitting there. But then in verse 4, he pulls back the curtain to show you the spiritual reality on the other side. What's really going on? And what does he say? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So verse 3 is his daily experience. I was in utter agony. I was in stress and anxiety over my sin. But pull back the curtain of the physical world and what's behind all that anxiety and guilt. The hand of the Lord was pushing on his conscience. What was causing that anxiety and stress? Your hand was heavy upon me. My children can't fathom what it's like to be an adult. They just... They have no concept of it. In fact, they think, hey, when I'm an adult, I'm free of consequences, right? Right now, when I'm a kid, all y'all do is get on to me and punish me and yada yada, but I can't wait till I'm an adult because then I don't have to ever face any kind of punishment. And so when we tell them, look, we get punished by the Lord, they go, what? That doesn't even make sense. What do you mean you're punished by the Lord? And the questions that we often get are, are just like that. What, what does that mean that the Lord disciplines you? What is that like when the Lord disciplines you? And David is telling you right here, this is what happens when the Lord disciplines you. You remain silent in your sin, maybe. You pretend like it doesn't exist. You pretend like nothing is wrong. You come to church and you pretend like there's, there's nothing. I wouldn't sin. I don't know what sin you're talking about. I, I refuse to confess that. Or maybe even the Lord doesn't want to hear from me in all of this. Surely. You think God surely doesn't care about it, maybe. And inside, you're torn up from morning to evening. 
Your relationship with the Lord is never the same. It just seems like you can't get over this. Well, that, dear Christian, is the Lord's hand heavy upon you. That is the discipline of the Lord. And sometimes it even gets more severe than that. Tell me if you can relate to the position that David is in. In our our world today, sin is more secretive than it ever has been before. In each of our pockets, we carry around a world of potential to sin. Without anyone knowing. We can pursue it in near complete silence. If I sit in a counseling session with any man under about the age of 40, I would even push that up probably to 50. I assume that an addiction to illicit material found online is somewhere either in the past or the present. And to this day, I have not been proven wrong. It has been somewhere in the past or present. If I sit down with anyone, man or woman, under the age of 30, that's also generally true. Man or woman. And that's not just anecdotal either. Psychology Today reports that 90% of young men surveyed, 90% of young men surveyed said that they've sought these sites with some regularity. And my bet is that the remaining 10% either came out of addiction or are just flat lying. The leading website for that kind of content reports that 90, get this, 90 billion videos are viewed daily. 90 billion viewed daily by 64 million users. That's just one site. 64 million users. 26% of them are female. All of that is to say that the sins that used to be relatively public are more secretive than they've ever been. So, so, and the point of that is to say that we, can, we feel like, and, and, and our, our world today is giving us the assurance that our sin can be just within our, our own minds, that it can be kept within our own hearts, that we don't have to tell anybody, it never has to be known, and that's the deception that kind of works its way in. No one has to know about this. This can be as secretive as you want it to be. And it doesn't just have to be that kind of sin. It can be a whole host of other sins. We think we can keep it to ourselves. And so the point is that if if we as husbands and wives and parents, if we're not having conversations about these kinds of things on a regular basis, if we're not asking our spouse difficult questions, if we don't have plans as to how to safeguard our home and our, our children and ourselves, then there's a high likelihood that it's running rampant. And because we're going to convince ourselves that we can keep it within and we can keep it secret. And but whatever your sin might be, that feeling of guilt and of shame, that aspect of your sin that's tearing you apart, that makes you feel just sweaty even thinking about the topic. And you're like, I don't even want to listen to this. It's the Lord's hand pressing heavily upon you in conviction of His Spirit. 
So what happens to David then? What's the result from David? The lines in verse 5 are, are nearly an exact repetition of verses 1 and 2. You see, he's, he's saying almost the exact same thing he says in verses 1 and 2. In the first two lines, David gives these, these beatitudes, and the sense is that the man is blessed, whose, he says, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whose iniquity is not counted, who isn't hiding any sin, basically, is what he says. Well, then in verse 5, we see that what brought David to his place of understanding was his own experience. I confessed it. I didn't hide my iniquity anymore after you pressed on me. I refused to cover it. So he repeats all of those same blessings that he had in verses 1 and 2, and in that he acknowledged it before the Lord now. He confessed it, and this is how I know. Here's the beauty of that line, though. What does he say in verse 5? You forgave me. I didn't hide it. I confessed it. And the Lord forgave my iniquity. The blessing at the beginning comes from personal experience of the king. And what is he doing? He's commending it to all people. He's commending it to everybody who would listen. Please understand that what happened to me was I felt conviction and the Lord's hand was heavy upon me, but when I confessed it, do you know what he did? Did he crush me? He forgave me. That's how I know. How did he receive that blessing? He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I said, I will confess. And what was the result? He says, you forgave But this is not just David. This is repeated to us again in 1 John. Remember, I read from 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But then in the very next verse, in 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So his confession, David's confession, launches him into a message for the whole godly of the nation to listen and to follow. And so what follows from verses 6 to 11 is all of the lessons that he wants us to learn. And there is, there is by my count, at least three lessons that David wants us to learn from him as he struggled with sin that he's now encouraging us to, to do, to follow after him. The first lesson is confess now. Confess now. Don't wait. Look at what he says in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's the admonition. That's his admonition to those that are spiritually caught in the midst of sin. Don't do what I did and try to hide your sin and try to run away. Just go ahead and confess it now. There's ample evidence in, in the rest of Scripture that what David is telling you is biblically sound. Take your sin right now, lay it out before the Lord in prayer, just confess it and own up to it. But the rest of Scripture is also going to push you a little bit further the more you read. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23-24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, In other words, that you've sinned against him. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He doesn't say, confess your sin to the Lord and then give your gift. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. Your sin is against somebody else. Go make it right with them too. 
confess it to them too. Or what about James in James 5.16? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, this is where it gets hard. The rubber meets the road, so to speak, of our confession. The Bible is not content to just leave you with a confession to the Lord. I can keep not only my sin secret, but I can also keep my confession secret. There is ample evidence in the rest of Scripture that if you've sinned against someone else, your confession is not just to the Lord, it's also to the one you've sinned against. Or in James' cases, in general, in the body of Christ. In other words, the, the church as a whole should be an environment where sin can be confessed. And you're not ridiculed for that. You're admonished, you're corrected, you're encouraged to pursue righteousness, you're encouraged to confess, but you're not made fun of, you're not gossiped about, you're not slandered against. It's a, it's a church body that understands sin is the norm that we struggle with, but pursuing righteousness is what we're going to encourage everyone to do and that you can be prayed for. In the example that I gave earlier, the husband or the wife that's engaged in a sin that's otherwise secret, the guilt won't and shouldn't stop simply because you confess it to the Lord. You are one flesh with your spouse. So if you've sinned against your spouse, particularly a sexual sin, it's a sin against them too. And it should be confessed and owned. And forgiveness should be had, not only by God, of course, but also by your spouse. The confession that the Lord is calling you to is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card. In other words, there may be repercussions that you're going to have to face in the here and now. So as an example, the abuser can't just confess his sin and go, hey, everybody forgive me of my abuse. No, if what you did was illegal, justice should be pursued and you can have forgiveness in jail. That's the course of an abuser, and that's good and godly. But you won't serve jail time with a guilty conscience, and that's great. So it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. David's urging us toward true repentance and true restoration. He follows that up in the rest of verse 6. He says, surely the rush of great waters. This is what he's trying to stave off, not judgment in the here and now. Not justice in the here and now. He's trying to stave off judgment in the long run. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. He says, confess now and avoid not momentary discipline. No, no, not momentary justice. That may come. What he's trying to avoid is long-term discipline and judgment from God. That's what's seeking to be avoided. This right here is the heart of the gospel message that we preach, that we come to understand. Stop brushing the Word of God aside as if He doesn't care anything about sin. As if he's just going to pass over yours. He's not looking at you. He doesn't pay attention to you. Stop listening to preaching that only ever tells you how to live your best life now. That's not what David is saying. When, when he says, you, you're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's talking about eternal judgment. He keeps him safe from eternal judgment. 
He's not writing a psalm to teach you how to be materially wealthy and avoid all consequences just by having good morals. That's not what he's saying. He's telling you how to avoid the judgment of God. The message that you and I hear from Monday to Saturday from the culture is that you only live once, get the most out of life that you can because you don't get a second chance. You hear things like there is no God, but even if there was a God, we'd all be condemned because, hey, we all got skeletons in our closet, so who could possibly stand? So we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not a gospel that you would think would capture a lot of people. Because if you truly understand it, it's absolutely bleak. There is no hope, and you're just worm food when you die. But it's a gospel message that captures people day in and day out and convinces them that there is nothing behind the curtain. That if you pull back the curtain, there's nothing. And then you're left with these questions like, well, what happens when I die? And the world tells you, oh, oh, sweetheart, no, 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 no one knows what happens when you die. Just come over here. You've got more living to do. Shh. Those questions shouldn't be asked. Meanwhile, the Bible is over here screaming, Judgment! Judgment happens when you die. When you die, you stand before a holy God. And you're judged. And we're all going to stand before that holy God. And then what's going to happen is your righteousness is not going to be compared to your friend's righteousness. Because if your righteousness was compared to your friend's righteousness depending on the friend, so long as you get to pick the friend. If your righteousness were compared to their righteousness, hey, you'd be pretty good. I'm picking Hitler, if that was the case. Let me stand next to him. That's not what happens. Your righteousness is held up to God's holiness. That's the comparison. How do you stand now? What does it look like compared to his holiness? And there's not one of us that's going to be able to stand if it's my righteousness against His holiness. Unless, of course, your sins are forgiven. Then everything changes. If your sins are forgiven, as David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Unless you're that guy. Because if you're that guy, well, now it's a game changer on Judgment Day. See, the Bible is also screaming to you that there is one. That there is one. Jesus the righteous. Who lived a perfect life, which is why we call him Jesus the righteous. And he suffered God's wrath for you. He stood in your place and was punished for all of your sin. So that on Judgment Day, you might actually see how truly blessed is the man whose sin is not counted, whose iniquity is forgiven. And you might ask yourself, well, how do I get some of that? David tells us in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confess your sins to the Lord. Just, just lay them out there. In prayer, just 
lay them all out there. Here's all the ones that I know of that come to the top of my head. And every day that I can think of more, I'm just going to lay those out there too. And on the back end of that is trust. Trust that on Judgment Day, the blood of Christ is actually going to cover all of those sins. That in the midst of all of your sins being laid out on the docket, that Jesus Christ is going to say, yes, those are all true, but he's mine, or she's mine. And I've paid for all of those. It's trust. Never stop trusting. Confess them now. That's what David says. But the second lesson he wants us to learn from him, he says, learn from the Lord and avoid wandering in sorrow. In other words, learn from the Lord. Stay close to the Lord and avoid the wandering and the sorrow. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. These verses are probably the strongest warning that David actually gives to us in this psalm. He he gets really down, very practical, and and he has heaps of personal experience, and he speaks straight to uh, us in the reading of the psalm. He's saying, look, look at me in the eye. I'm going to be your instructor. Look at me when I'm talking to you. I'm going to keep my eye on you as as I tell you these things. And so then he gives this word of warning. Don't be like the horse or mule that needs that bit or bridle in order to stay close to its, its owner. He's not talking about somebody that's stubborn. He's talking about somebody that's prone to wander. We went on vacation, uh, I think it was last year, we, we did a trail, trail ride, horseback trail ride through the Smoky Mountains. And it was, it was me and Andrea and the three kids. And as we were in the, in the stables with those horses, uh, I could hear the prayers of the horses. I even saw one of them get down on his, on his knees and, and put his little hooves together, and he said, Dear Lord, put one of those kids on my back. And that's sure enough. His prayer was answered, and our kids got to sit on the back of that horse, and let's just say he had a really fun trail ride. <laughs> kind of went wherever he wanted to, wasn't told what he had to do, took a kid off in the, off in the woods, once and had to, had to be corralled back in. They're prone to wander. They have to be corrected with bit and bridle. They have to be jerked back into place or they'll wander. And that's what he's discouraging here. Don't do that. Don't take the road less traveled. Take the clear and steady path. It looks harder, but it's, it's not. If you've ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, this is a, g- a great example of what David is actually saying here. You can constantly wander. You can choose that way. You can constantly take that path through the woods. Or you can stay close to me. You have the choice. The two, these two concepts, confession and staying close to the Lord, are, are part and partial of the same thing. You either, you either wander from the Lord or you stay close to the Lord. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does it mean there in James to submit to God? Well, it's going to be resisting the devil. What does it mean to draw near to God? Well, it's going to be resisting the devil. It's going to be confession of sin. When you do pursue sin, it's going to be confession of it. Of course, it's going to be pursuing righteousness for the most part, but it's going to be confession of sin when you do pursue it. Well, how do I stay close to the Lord? 
He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double mind. It's part of the same action. Resisting sin, confession of sin, is staying close to the Lord. And that's what David is encouraging you to. Don't just pursue sin. Confess it. Give it to Him. Otherwise, over time, His Word grows stale to you. You sit in worship services time and again, and you get bored by the teaching from your church. You lack desire to spend time in the Word of God on a regular basis. It doesn't seem to have the same interest to you as it did before. Maybe you find yourself in, even in that position now. I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that even in the reading of this psalm today, the Lord is calling to you through His Word, come back. Confess your sin. Come to me and find forgiveness. So that's the good news. He's, he's urging you to repent just in the plain reading of His Word. You have a chance to repent, to confess, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He's saying, don't be like the mule, don't wander. You've done enough wandering. Confess your iniquities and believe in Jesus Christ. The bad news is, that call won't last forever. There is a time appointed for you to die. And right now, you might feel like that's a long way away. i got plenty of time. But that day might come upon you quicker than you think. And all of a sudden, you're standing before the throne of God in judgment. Right after your eyes close in death. And it's too late. At that moment, the flood waters of judgment are upon you. So David says to you, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You'll be spared from judgment. And maybe it's that you're thinking to yourself, why would I give up the life that I have? Why would I give up a life of seeming fun and entertainment, eating and drinking and being merry? Merriness is in the title, right? It's in the phrase. It's right there. Why would I give that up to pursue righteousness? It sounds so dull and it sounds so boring. But that's the biggest lie you're choosing to believe. You've grown so desensitized to your own sin. You don't realize how many sorrows are weighing you down until you actually have a clean conscience. But what you're doing, what David says you're doing, what I'm saying you're doing, what everyone who's ever experienced that kind of forgiveness is saying that you're doing is you're trading sorrows of wickedness for steadfast love of the Lord. You're trading guilt and sin for the joy and gladness of a clean conscience. And that's his last lesson. For the one who's found forgiveness, rejoice. Let the people who choose to harbor sin and live in wickedness and sorrow see the life that you live, the joyous life that you live, not only free from iniquity and guilt, but forgiven under the blood of Christ church body should not only be a place where we can confess the sins that we have, that we're struggling with, where we can receive help and encouragement to 
push us and urge us towards righteousness, where we can read God's Word and be corrected and convicted so that we can confess our sins. But it should also be a place where we are rejoicing for the forgiveness that we have. The hymns that we sing, we should sing them loudly because you're a forgiven people. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. So sing them loud and proud. Brothers and sisters, the church is not for pretending you're perfect. It's not what we're doing here. It's for proclaiming that God is perfect. And in Christ, He's forgiven us. That's the miracle. Take it from me. I've been there. I've been in a place where I've stood and sat in the pews, harboring sin and resentment and bitterness. I've been there. I've ignored conviction. I've walked out of the church, sworn I'd never go back, didn't look forward to going because I knew what I was going to hear when I got there. I knew how guilty I would feel, and then I felt that same repetitive sin over and over again. I've been there. It's sorrow upon sorrow. But if you're unbelieving, currently not trusting the Lord at all, maybe don't even believe there is a God. I'm urging you to reconsider. I've had doubt. I've had times of unbelief. I've had times where I would rather have pursued sin. Take it from me, I've been there. Some lessons are best to learn from the experience of others. But even if you're currently in that position, confess your iniquity to the Lord. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to forgive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every one of us in this room as we consider the sin that's in our own life, that we might trust in Christ instead. As ludicrous as it sounds, all we have to do is confess and be forgiven. That's the amazing part of the gospel. Is that it's free. And it's offered to everyone in this room. I pray for our hearts to be softened to your word. That we might trust it and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.